Hello, I'm Holly Alfano, CEO of ILMA, the Independent Lubricant Manufacturers Association. This is ILMA's Lube Trends. Thanks for listening. This podcast was originally recorded as a Lube Trends virtual town hall on May 13th, 2022. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to ILMA's Lube Trends Town Hall. And we are very grateful to Chevron Oronite for sponsoring our series of town halls again this year. I'm Caitlin Jacobs, ILMA's Director of Communications. Holly Alfano passed the baton to me because she's lost her voice. I'm sure that our fellow allergy sufferers can relate to that this time of year. Today, we're talking about OSHA's new heat hazard national emphasis program, and I am pleased to welcome our expert panelists. Our first two panelists are with August Mack Environmental. You probably recognize that name as August Mack has been involved with ILMA for 10 years now, and they offer regular free webinars to ILMA members. They are an environmental and safety consulting firm that specializes in due diligence, EPA and OSHA compliance, and remediation of contaminated sites. Glenn Miller is a senior compliance manager with August Mack, who has 40 years of experience in the chemical industry. Ed Callahan is a program development manager, and he has more than 35 years of experience in safety compliance, among other areas. And while I'm sure he needs no introduction, we also have ILMA's longtime general counsel, Jeff Leiter. Thank you all for being with us today. So we are going to begin uh, with some background discussion, and then we will open up the floor uh, for some Q&A with our audience members towards the end. So if you're thinking of your questions, you want to jot those down as we go along, we'll be sure to address those once we've established um, a good background and and heard what our, our experts have to say. So let me get us started with some slides uh, that Jeff Leiter is going to be sharing. Thank you, Caitlin. And as the slides are coming up, good afternoon, everyone. Ilma had invited OSHA, a representative from the agency, to appear today and summarize to you what the agency is trying to do in the area of preventing and mitigating uh, heat hazard injuries and illnesses. They were unavailable today. So for purposes of my presentation, pretend that I'm the OSHA representative and that I'm here to help you. Anyway, what I wanted to do was just spend a few minutes just kind of laying the groundwork for the presentation from our colleagues from from August Mag. Since the Biden administration came into office, they've made it a priority and they've not hidden the fact that that they intend to try to take steps to prevent and mitigate heat-related injuries and illnesses in the workplace. A few weeks ago, OSHA conducted a speaking session, a virtual session with several thousand people attending and, and over 300 people making comments, including Ilma. During that conversation, Secretary Walsh, the Secretary of Labor, gave additional in background on the reasons for this particular initiative by OSHA. And, and he characterized heat hazards as both a worker protection issue as well as one dealing with racial equity, that because of the number of workers of color inside and outside, both inside and outside workplaces, that this had had a significant racial equity component to it as, as well. I'll get into a little more detail in a second, but for years, OSHA has relied on its general duty clause, which effectively says every employer 
regardless of any exemptions or other things and other labor laws, every employer is obligated to provide a safe workplace free from known hazards to its employees. Uh, OSHA has, because it's had no specific standards on heat hazards, has relied on it on this general duty clause from an enforcement perspective basis. And then beginning around 2011, OSHA also began issuing guidance related to, to heat hazards and, and how to address them for both employers and employees. They started with their regional emphasis programs, but then have made them generally available. And, and if you went on to the OSHA website, went to heat hazards, you could see a lot of that guidance that's been issued over the past decade. So, so what's changed? Why all of a sudden are we at the stage where the Biden administration is making this a high priority? Uh, OSHA, as part of its background on, on both long-term and short-term goals in this area, say that rolling average of heat-related fatalities has more than doubled uh, over the since the early 1990s. And as part of that analysis, they cite to folks that, that have taken time to, to go through their data, and, and they believe that, that these heat-related illnesses and injuries and fatalities are underreported. Some estimates are, are up to 50% under reporting. Because of the issue here, both in indoor and outdoor work environments, OSHA believes that they need to take action because hazardous heat conditions can affect cognitive function, reduce decision-making capability, reduce employee productivity. All of these things tied into possibly incre these increased rates of, of injuries and, and illnesses. They believe that a lot of that can, is, is preventable. In addition to the mental effects, there is also other health conditions. They believe that occupational exposure to heat can, can take years from the exposure to manifest itself. So with those purposes in mind, OSHA has, has established, and again, with the, particularly with this racial equity piece, two goals, uh, one long-term and, and short-term. And let me discuss the long term first and then we can get into why we're here today but in terms of long term goals the agency last october issued an extensive request for information through what's known as an advanced notice pros rulemaking uh, in that federal register notice osha propounded 117 questions to stakeholders about the, the extent nature of, of hazardous heat in the workplaces the kinds of controls, methods, the steps that current employers are, are taking to prevent these injuries and illnesses. At the same time, OSHA looked as part of his ANPRM to other state programs that are already in a place where, where states have adopted standards or regulations to deal with, with heat hazards in the workplace. Uh, California, Minnesota, Washington, and Oregon are the four primary states. Oregon just adopted it, so it's in the process of being implemented. Uh, in addition, there's three states, Colorado, Maryland, and Nevada, who've recently passed state-level laws that are going to require their state agencies to promulgate some form of regulations dealing with, with controlling hazards from, from heat in workplaces. Uh, I will tell you one of the other pieces to this long-term goal, and OSHA right now is in the process of analyzing the comments that it received on the ANPRM. Uh, ILMA was one of the groups that did submit comments explaining 
uh, its position. And I guess toward the back end here, I can get into that a little bit more. Uh, nonetheless, we, we, we certainly, as Ilma, we're seeking a more flexible approach than a one-size-fits-all. Nonetheless, one of the other things besides the racial equity I've mentioned a few times that is bleeding into the proposal that we expect later this year for a notice of proposed rulemaking that actually sets the standard in making rulemaking process in place uh, is climate change as well. OSHA is believing that uh, given the record heat over a number of the last few summers, that temperatures are just going to keep on rising. And, and so part of this effort, as well as, as you can see, government-wide with, with OSHA trying to make climate change a priority for itself. So if we go to the next slide, we, slide, we can talk about the short-term goals. Uh, back on April 8th, OSHA issued what's known as, as a National Emphasis Program Directive on Heat Hazards. Uh, it was effective that day. It's in place for a, a period of time under which OSHA expects to conduct proactive inspections for heat-related hazards. Again, this would be both indoors as well as in outdoor work environments. OSHA has identified 70 industries by NAI, NAICS codes, and unfortunately, ILMA members fall into that bucket of 70 codes that, that the agency has decided to look at to ensure that, that they've taken appropriate steps, employers have taken appropriate steps to in safety measures to protect their, their employees from these heat-related hazards. So I, I think my colleagues will get into a little bit more detail in terms of some of the, the ways that, that OSHA plans to, to look at this. But from a 30,000-foot level, level, what's triggering an inspection under the NEP uh, is, is that uh, first, when OSHA might be conducting other safety inspecting inspections, and in OSHA states, the, these are conducted by the agency using CS, CSHOs or Compliance and Safety Health Officers. But if they're conducting these non-heat-related investigations, they, they will open a heat-related inspection into any hazardous conditions they observe or reported to them while they're doing their walkthrough from employees. I kind of use as my benchmark if the heat index is going to be 80 degrees Fahrenheit or more in your area, expect that OSHA may come knocking in terms of inquiring about what kind of heat-related hazard prevention programs uh, you, you have in place. So if, if it's over 80 degrees, I mean, it's you know, anticipate that there could be the knock on the door. In addition, when the National Weather Service uh, announces a heat warning, or advisory for the local area. OSHA claims they'll use a neutral objective criteria, but their plan is to look at some of the high-risk industries that, that are in that particular area and uh, pre-plan them for inspections. In addition, the Labor Department's Wage Hour Division has been very active and aggressive under the Biden administration. To the extent that they're conducting any investigation during these warmer months or hot months. There's an agreement between OSHA and the wage hour division to have the wage hour folks refer any information about potential heat hazards that, that they see during those investigations. So it's, it's this possibility. It's a possibility that OSHA is going to come in and use the, the 80 degree plus day to target these seven, seven, the industries and given its priority, there's a, Probability. I mean, I, I 
don't know what number to put on it, but there's a probability that an ILMA member's facility is going to get selected for an invest for an inspection during this period. When OSHA comes in, and again, they have a written directive that specifies this, but when the inspector comes to the facility, uh, the things the inspector is going to look at include uh, looking at injury and illness logs uh, and incident reports for anything that might indicate a heat-related illness or injury. They'll look for any records where an employee may have been transported to an emergency room or been transported by ambulance as well. Uh, even if they weren't hospitalized, they were treated and discharged, let's say, for dehydration. They will interview workers with respect to any symptoms they may be, have experienced, headache, dizziness, fainting, dehydration. They'll look to see if the employer has high water hydration stations or uh, also determine you know, other steps they may take in terms of breaks, acclimatization for new employees in particular, uh, training. Uh, they'll look at policies and procedures to see if there's anything else in your written documentation to support dealing with, with heat-related um, uh, hazards. And they also want to see if you've documented anything in terms of on a National Weather System or Service uh, Heat Alert Day. Have you done any kind of log, uh, you know, put some instruction out through the managers or supervisors in terms of making sure that employees aren't overexerting themselves, controlling their duration of heat and, and, and things like that. So those are all the elements of what the, the inspector is going to be looking for. Recognize on top of that, to the extent that there are any kind of penalties, civil penalties involved, that those continue to increase. And you know they're not an insignificant amount of money. So in terms of what you should do, that's why we're here and why, why our colleagues from August Mac are going to explain the kinds of steps that, that you can take. Given the keen focus, as I've outlined from OSHA, both in the long term and the short term, we're going to get into it, but just from the lawyer's perspective, is to make sure that you've got written policies to address these heat-related hazards. Make sure that that policy has some provision in it to climatize new employees who haven't adjusted, adjusted to working a full day, let's say inside the, 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 the plant uh, where the, the temperature is high in those days. Have something in there to, to monitor uh, and, and, and make sure the employee's exposure to heat is controlled. And then lastly, you know, what have you done to train them as with respect to mitigating and, and then dealing with emergency situations? So that's all I have, Caitlin. Uh, I'll turn it back to you and look forward to questions later on. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Now, uh, Glenn and Ed are going to fill us in on what employers should do to ensure that they are in compliance. Thank you, Caitlin. And welcome, everyone. The National Emphasis Program, as Jeff has very uh, aptly laid out for everyone, is um, uh, geared for both outdoor and indoor heat-related hazards. Uh, the first step is just assessing what your workplace is like. Where are the hottest points in that workplace? What's a typical day look like, both from the worker's perspective of what he's expected to accomplish in a day's time, and also from the workplace layout itself? Because ambient temperature is not the only factor raising body temperature of the workers, but one little point to keep in mind is that 
when the body temperature reaches 140 degrees Fahrenheit for as little as 30 minutes, there's already brain damage started and even death can occur. So again, like Jeff had emphasized, there's not only the short term, but the long term health risks at stake here. So that's why before the heat index reaches 80 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, we need to assess these factors that could lead to heat stress. And that includes environmental factors, what's going on outside, and also personal factors. Uh, we'll get into a little more detail in just a moment on those. For the environmental stress factors, we obviously have the ambient temperature outside or inside, plus the humidity. And when you take those two into account in unison, uh, there's a table of uh, what the resultant heat index is going to be. And that again is what triggers a potential inspection when that heat index equals 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So that includes direct sunlight and the amount of shade that may either be naturally provided or provided for you. Uh, the type of workload you're gonna be doing, is it gonna be strenuous? some heavy lifting, or is it just light duty? Is there limited air movement? Uh, if you're in a confined space, for example, you may have very little air movement within that area. Can ventilation be added easily to the work area uh, to abate part of that heat stress factor? Uh, hot equipment giving off heat, making it even worse. Uh, reflected heat, either off the ground or Heaven help you if you're up on a roof on a hot day, you know what that's like. And finally, does the job safety itself require you to wear protective clothing like long sleeves or gloves or even a full encapsulated uh, suit or some other PPE like respirators that will add a, a discomfort level to you and just hasten the heat stress from uh, coming on? Then there's the personal heat stress factors, and that includes things like lack of physical fitness, yours truly included, uh, obesity, high blood pressure, chronic heart disease, any medications that would have a diuretic effect, uh, taking fluids out of your body as well. You could have a sunburn, that has an effect. Infections, and like uh, Jeff again said, if, especially if you're a veteran coming back from a lengthy vacation or a new hire, you've got to provide some kind of acclimatization uh, so that you can get kind of accustomed to working out in that kind of heat again and start with kind of light duty and then work up to the more strenuous tasks that are, are required for the job. The second step then, once an assessment is done, is to develop a written program or a plan. It's not enough just to kind of carry it around in your head and say, oh yeah, I know what I'm going to do when um, the ocean inspector comes and I'll be able to talk my way through it all. He's going to look for something written. What changes to the normal work practices have you implemented when that heat index gets 80 or higher? or when the weather alerts, heat alerts are out there, or heat waves by the local weatherman. These need to be stated in the written program and in this order of, of priority. The first thing would be engineering controls. What can you engineer the heat stress risk away by doing? 
maybe insulating equipment, uh, providing shade, umbrellas, canopies, or some other temporary tents, some cooling structures, uh, providing uh, shaded work rest areas, and certainly cool water stations that uh, people can stay hydrated. Next in our administrative controls, uh, the work rest ratio should be adjusted so that you're implementing or adding a couple additional rest periods during the day. And then train how to recognize the symptoms and signs of heat stress in both yourself and in your coworkers. That's why a lot of folks are uh, considering uh, seriously going to some kind of a buddy system so that you have to look out for your buddy as well as yourself. And when you notice any indications that a heat stress illness is, is coming on, what, when and how do you go about uh, taking care of that? Uh, how do you take rest breaks? How do you stay hydrated? These should all be covered as administrative controls. And finally then, if those things are inadequate enough to make sure you're not causing anyone injury, you have to be thinking about personal protective equipment. And there's a multitude of things out there available in the way of cooling vests, lighter work attire, uh, absorptive cooling, personal protective equipment. And of course, if you're working outside, the good old sunscreen uh, to keep you from getting that uh, beating down heat rash or sunburn. How do we recognize it? Well, the first stage that probably sets in would be heat rash. And these are small red pimples on the skin because the sweat ducts have become clogged and you'll notice that right away. The next kind of stage is, Caitlin, if you move on, there you go, heat cramps. Um, I've experienced this myself and they, they aren't pleasant, but they're painful muscle spasms often in the legs that occur caused by heavy sweating and inadequate electrolyte replacement. So again, a lot of companies are considering electrolyte drinks uh, in addition to just uh, plain water uh, to help that electrolyte replacement. Heat exhaustion comes about with headaches, weakness, mood changes. Uh, you might have pale or clammy skin, just a general sick feeling uh, coming on, uh, and it's caused by increased stress on various parts of the body due to the high body temperature. Again, people are saying that heat exhaustion actually begins at around 97 and a half degrees Fahrenheit. That is typically what the average body temperature of a healthy individual is. So anything above that, and you're already starting the initial stages of heat exhaustion. And finally, heat stroke, which is the most serious of all. Uh, that's when the core body temperature simply can't deal with it anymore and it raises to critical levels. Uh, you end up with pale skin, nausea, potentially vomiting, and just a general confusion. You don't know where you're at or what you were trying to do. So you need to make sure that your written program includes these critical considerations. One is implementing a work rest regimen based on the following. Make sure that the anticipated and required work rate and the type of work that is expected to be performed is clearly outlined so that when you say you can take two rest periods in this amount of time, 
it's clear to everybody as we later talk about training, uh, just what is expected that they accomplish in a day and when and how they can rest from that assigned work task. The ambient temperatures and other environmental factors, the type of protective clothing uh, and PPE that's needed for the job. Uh, you might also indicate if there are options there that you wear this type of clothing, but on a super hot day, you can step down to something less if that is a viable option and still maintain your general safety. And finally, the individual worker characteristics and fitness. And don't forget those five specific things that Jeff mentioned that the EPA auditor is looking for. Are there, is there adequate water? Is there sufficient rest periods provided? Is adequate shade available? Again, either natural shade or something that you've provided in the way of a canopy or an umbrella or something to shade the, the worker. Uh, do you have that acclimatization procedure for new and returning employees? And has the appropriate heat stress avoidance training been conducted? This is a key point, and I don't want to underestimate it. Uh, like all of the OSHA uh, topics, there is a training piece attached to it. Uh, you can have the best written program in the world and done the best assessment of all the, the things you can think of that could go wrong during a high heat period. Uh, but if you haven't communicated that effectively to the people, and that includes the temporary workers, OSHA has just recently come out with an additional instruction to their inspectors, don't overlook the temporary workers. Some folks may say, well, I've got the temp agency handling all that training. You and the temp agency share the responsibility of adequate training. So uh, you can't expect in most cases that the agency will know all the heat stress related things that could contribute on your job site. Uh, you know the job site better than they do, of course. So you need to make sure that you're training both your permanent and your temporary help. And that, like I said, includes the temporary hires and the summer help. Um, a lot of people do, because of vacations, incorporate a lot of um, uh, temporary people. And that's a good thing, but it can also be a problem when it comes to training. Next, well, thank you. Train to your written program. Include how to recognize heat stress symptoms what actions to take in the event of heat stress, and what heat reducing PPE will be used. And equally important, how do you maintain it? If you've got a cooling vest and you get ready to use it that day and it's got a big hole in it and now all the coolant's out of it, you haven't maintained it properly and it's obviously of no value. So that's uh, my piece of the action. I'm gonna turn it over to Ed here and let him talk about some other considerations that you would want to take into account as well. So uh, thank you, Glenn and Caitlin, for the opportunity. Glenn and uh, Jeff have done a really good job outlining, uh, you know, what the uh, emphasis program is and, and some of the things you need to do in order to protect yourself. I just wanted to bring up a couple of other considerations that uh, 
that may have an impact. So if we can go to the next screen, and I'm not going to cover all these because they were talked about, and I don't want to duplicate what, what's already been said. But you know that 18 of the last 19 summers were the hottest on record. So, you know, we go back to the climate change and the president's initiative. You know, a lot of this is being related to climate change and the fact that summers are getting, they're the hottest on record. So another thing, uh, OSHA estimates that there's over 3,500 injuries or illnesses that are associated with uh, heat every year. Applicability. So some other points on applicability, they seem to be pretty wrapped around this 40 targeted industries. And, and you can imagine why they selected them. Obviously, OSHA 300, 301 reports that, that talk about your injuries and illnesses. That data flows back to OSHA, and then that's how they kind of figure out where these problems start at. And so you can imagine foundries and uh, iron mills, any place that's, that's going to be hot, roofers, that those are the types of industries that you're going to find in there. And there's several that could fall into the OSHA categories. But it actually, if you read into the uh, emphasis program a little deeper, it does say that they will also inspect any uh, heat-related f- uh, fatality, a catastrophe, a complaint, a referral, regardless whether the work uh, site falls within that uh, SIC code. So just wanted to make that point that just because you may not be on the list uh, doesn't mean that you're in the clear. And then uh, the next point below that, I believe Jeff talked about, uh, I will mention third parties. So um, Glenn just talked about temporary workers, which happens a lot. You know, it's, it could be a seasonal thing, certainly in the farming community or whatever. But uh, some proactive companies actually have requirements for contractors to come on their site. So, you know, those of you who are doing that uh, will now have to add another thing to your list to check from your third-party contractors. So a lot of times these contractors may be smaller than your than your business and may not have the resources to be uh, as far down the road as you are. So just a, a, a good management practice is as you're checking to make sure that they have their fall protection program and, and all that, you're now going to want to ask them for their uh, their heat program. And then I thought this was interesting. You know, you, you look at heat issues and they, they, they kind of gauge a lot of it around the heat index and the, and the outside temperature. But there is a lot of things that could cause heat related factors in humans. And I like this illustration. It actually is not even comprehensive. It, it just gives several of them. But, you know, there's things like medicine that people take that can actually increase their vulnerability to heat, things like pregnancy, age, even sometimes the PPE, like Glenn said, the PPE that's used to protect people. I remember being back in the asbestos business and having to put on Tyvek suits and and masks and go into a containment. It was extremely hot. We had to implement breaks back then uh, just so that people wouldn't pass out. And even stuff like caffeine and uh, and alcohol can affect your risk or your tolerance of heat. A couple of things about the written programs, Glenn hit pretty well on, on uh, what those should include, but another thing you probably want to include in there is your risk assessment. So like with a lot of OSHA regulations, the, one of the first things you're doing is you're, you're going in and trying to do either a job hazard analysis or assess whether this particular issue is a risk 
or what the risk of a particular job are. And uh, as you go through that assessment, that actually should be part of your uh, program. So it kind of shows a methodology or how you assessed uh, the temperature and the work uh, that was exerted during uh, each of their activities. And then another thing that could be in there is, uh, you know, how do you record weather data or heat data? OSHA is very big on records. And if you have a program that, that uh, actually shows that you're recording the weather days, you know, the heat data, if it's inside, then you should keep records of those. And then uh, in your program, you should have different levels of action items for different levels of heat. So, you know, they've even outlined that, that there's, I think there's more than three, but if it's less than 80, then use caution. If it's between 80 and 90 degrees Fahrenheit, then it's a warning. And uh, if it's over 95 degrees, then uh, it's, there's, there's danger there. So, you know, those should all kind of correspond with what your responses are to whatever the temperature is, whether it be it indoors or outdoors. So the other thing is, as I usually advise the clients, is that once these things start rolling, you'll, you'll be able to go online and probably find a, a, a written program that applies to heat-related injuries and illnesses. But it's always good to have something specific to your particular facility and the hazards and, and tasks that your people are dealing with. That makes a more a robust program and kind of doesn't lose people in things that they're really that don't apply to them. So, you know, that's one thing we uh, we we talk about a lot is is make the program specific to your hazards. And uh, if indoors, uh, you know, one thing I think is going to be very effective in in these types of situations might be signs or maps. So we've uh, we've done this several times where we've gone around a facility and have taken readings based off of a grid and can from that come up with a uh, like a topographical map that shows where the hot areas are. And, uh, you know, I could see in this case uh, maybe having to put signage up if people are entering, uh, per se, a hot uh, heat zone area. So uh, the other thing is, I think, in addition to just looking at the environment, is that the tasks that, that are known to cause heat stress, right? I mean, it could be a, a very cool day out, but if you're hauling shingles up a ladder all day or doing a lot of uh, stressful activity, that will definitely increase your factor in getting heat illness. And then also with written programs, you need to periodically update them. So once it's written, it's not done. Usually what I tell people is when there's a change in your process, and again, this could be indoors or outdoors, but if you have some type of a change in the way you're doing things, then you should go back and review your program and uh, make sure that it's up to date. Teach stress training. So uh, I think Glenn already talked about this, but you know, with the OSHA process kind of, you're doing the hazard analysis first. And then from there, you're trying to engineer it out or use administrative uh, techniques or PPE as a last resort. But your training should mirror your plan. So in, in the order of doing things, you want to assess, develop a training or develop a written program. And then your training should come right from that written program so that it matches things well. Uh, and docu uh, everything must be documented with OSHA, right? If you didn't, 
and and they have to be signed by employees. So just like any other training you're doing with uh, with OSHA, you have to have employees sign those. And uh, something I hear all the time is that you know keeping good records. If it if it wasn't recorded, it didn't happen. So uh, again, I think Glenn said you could have the perfect program, but if you're not training, and I'll say if you're not recording that training, then uh, it didn't happen. And then you may also require to update your written or your training if your written plan has changed, because it's a direct reflection of your written plan. So just wanted to point those couple of things out. I think there may be one more slide. Is that the end? Okay, that went quicker than I thought. That's great. Thank you, Ed. Now, um, we have just a few more minutes left before we get to our Q&A. Jeff has a couple notes on what to expect when the um, OSHA inspector, inspector does come uh, knocking on your door. Thank you, Caitlin. While the slides are coming up, it's just to the extent that the OSHA inspector knocks on your door. I just wanted to quickly just give a couple of pieces of advice. Actually, the best advice is at the bottom. They can get a warrant to search the premises and conduct an inspection. Don't deny them access. But as part of the process, the first step they need to identify themselves, present their credentials, ensure that they are, in fact, who they say they are. But typically, they'll present their ID. They'll sit down in your conference room or meeting area, say why they're there, what they might want to see in terms of the portions of the facility. Then they'll conduct the walk around. They'll have uh, interviews to they want to ask anyone. If your workplace is organized for any reason, you should have the supervisor from, from the organized labor union, uh, unit accompany you. And then once they're done, they should have a closing conference and tell you what they found. If there's areas for correction, uh, typically they'll follow up after they leave with a letter, but it's a fairly standard process by which they're trained. When they sit down with you at that closing conference, they'll discuss what Parent, viol- parent violations they see. They have a document that gives you what your rights are after they leave. They should, to the extent they're qualified, discuss the strengths and weaknesses of your program and also advise you of your rights, that if there's a citation, you have rights to challenge it and how to do so. That's all I had on that, Caitlin. All right. Thanks, Jeff. So now I think we would like to open up for questions from our, our listeners, our attendees. If you have a question or a comment, I believe you can push the raise hand button at the bottom and I should be able to recognize you and allow you to speak. Another option is to type your question into the chat box and then I can read that aloud. And we actually already have a couple of questions here that I will go ahead and kick us off with. So um, if my panelists would like to all unmute themselves so we can hear you. Um, The first question is from John Howell. um, And he says, does OSHA have a template program and does Ilma have a template for members to use, or does August Mac? Not that I know of. This is a new emphasis program, although that the hazards have been around for a, lot, a long time. NIOSH has done uh, countless studies on them. I, I'm sure that there are programs out there and that they will be coming out as a result of this. But uh, we don't have anything off the shelf right now that we would call a, um, a standard program. The only thing I would add is if you went into the OSHA directive for the NEP that's on, on the website, maybe Ilma can post that, uh, it it would show you the steps the inspector takes and what they're looking at. So, you know, kind of use that as your checklist if there's not a template. 
Absolutely. We'll certainly be sending out some resources, you know, that includes a link to uh, this recording and we can include some other resource links, such as the one that you just mentioned there, Jeff. Uh, No, Ilma does not at the moment have a template for that. Our next question is from Ron Powell. And he says, can anyone suggest specific jobs or tasks in a typical blending operation that would qualify, which I assume would be, you know, something that would be a specific concern for heat-related hazards? I guess I could um, offer an answer to that. First of all, we have to analyze whether it's a a hot blend or a um, ambient temperature blend that you're doing. Because obviously, if it's a hot blend, it's like stirring soup on the oven top or whatever. You're allowing that evaporation and heat to come off the, the blending operation there. Uh, if it's a, already a cool operation, then typically it's not. If there's added heat other than the temperature of the area itself, it would indicate some malfunction like equipment overheating or something else going on. But um, a simple walkthrough to see what kind of temperature and heat index is generated in that work area when the typical uh, blending operation is underway would be uh, the first step to uh, assessing what, what needs to be done there. Yeah, I, if I could just add real quick, I think it's interesting that they pointed out a particular process. So that makes me think that they must have some suspicion that there could be an issue there. And uh, if it was me, I would try to assess whatever duties or tasks are within your facility that you might suspect could be, uh, you know, could fall under this regulation. And while we are waiting for any additional questions from our listeners, um. I, I wanted to get back to something that you touched on, Jeff, about how OSHA is is looking to expand its heat hazard enforcement to outdoor environments. Um, is that correct? Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, in terms of the, the initial emphasis, by the, and I shouldn't use the word emphasis given the NEP, but the, for years, OSHA has really been more concerned with the outside work environment, construction workers, landscapers, folks like that. With Now they're moving indoors and giving more attention to the indoor piece. And, and while I have the floor, by the way, we, we did, uh, I should mention that as part of the advanced notice pros rulemaking, OSHA, I mean, Ilma did submit comments on the questions being asked by OSHA. We suggested, Ilma suggested a flexible performance-based heat standard, one that looks at the differences in workplaces, the dynamic nature of different workplaces. So including geography, physical condition of the workforce, um, air quality issues uh, in the area, things like that. All right. And are we aware of any uh, timing for any next steps that might be coming with this? And again, they're, they're hoping to have a proposed rule out in the fourth quarter this year. Right. And of course, Emma will be uh, keeping on top of that. Okay. All right. Yeah, thanks, Caitlin, everybody. Yeah, this is John. And uh, uh, following up actually on Ron's uh, question about, you know, where the likely uh, areas of stress are, and Glenn, what you said, you know, uh, you know, hot blending tank uh, for sure, or a mezzanine, you know, where there's tanks in a hot area, that's uh, almost assuredly on a heat, a high heat index day going to be an area of concern. But I would also say, watch outside. Hey, if somebody's out there mowing the lawn, for gosh sakes, you know, and it's a 90 degree heat index, that person is uh, 
is uh, as much under stress perhaps as anybody else. Uh, some of you folks in Illinois know that I do you know, some railroad work on the side. And uh, I was out uh, Wednesday uh, out in Iowa, and it was like 92 or 93. And it was just very hot to be outside. And uh, me and my crew had to take you know, an extra long time, extra breaks. Uh, so even though uh, there's no written program, you got to do what's sensible. And uh, uh, you know, please tell your folks to be sensible when it comes to managing their own uh, heat stress. Thanks. Very good, very good points, John. Um, and one thing I would add uh, on the indoor uh, side, I've seen some industries try to put a Band-Aid, a small Band-Aid on a problem. Somebody, a worker, let's say, at an injection machine is complaining that, boy, is it hot around here today. So they take a little fan and set it blowing right on this person. Well, that takes his problem away, but they don't have any real overall ventilation. So that heat is going somewhere else. And it's just creating a, a bigger problem for somewhere else in the, in the facility. So look at the broad picture, not just uh, an individual complaint by one of the workers. That's a good indication that you got a problem and need to start assessing things, but don't just move the problem elsewhere. That's great. We are bumping up against our hour here, but we probably have time for one or two more questions if there are any more out there. And hearing and seeing none, um, I would like to thank again all of our panelists for a really good, informative, um, actionable discussion. Uh, I'd like to thank all of our attendees for being with us um, with the, at this Ilma Lube Trends Town Hall. And of course, also our sponsor, again, Chevron Oronite. We greatly appreciate their support. A recording of this webinar will be available on the ILMA website uh, next week. And we'll also be sending out an email with some extra resources. I wish everyone a wonderful weekend and have a safe and cool summer. Thank you all. Thanks for tuning into Lube Trends, the official podcast of the Independent Lubricant Manufacturers Association. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future Lube Trends topics, or if you'd like to be a guest on the Lube Trends podcast, contact us at lubetrends at ilma.org. I'm Holly Alfano, CEO of ILMA. Thank you for listening.